Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another Real Conversation with one of the world's best economists. And, and best is defined by somebody who actually did it, you know, on the buy side, has done all the academic stuff uh, on the other side, and he is who he is every single day. It's also, Daniel, and I'm, I'm going to thank you, I always thank you for this, because when I wake up in the morning, you're the only one, one of the only ones, I should say, one of the only people that are tweeting at me uh, from another part of the world, but with actionable, real-time thoughts that are actually going to be a little bit more like tomorrow's news than yesterday's news, which, as you know, a lot of macro tourists pay attention to that. Thank you so much, Keith. It's always a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you for having me, absolutely. Yeah, you look good, man. We were just talking about the Spanish beaches and the, and the, uh, the rules that they have there. I'm telling Daniel a story about my, you know, the Connecticut uh, conference hockey rules. He's like, what? That sounds a little bit like, uh, what would you call it, the Baywatch of Spain? <laughs> the COVID Baywatch. We had the COVID Baywatch. Not anymore, but there was a time here during the lunacy of restrictions in Europe in which you had to wear a mask uh, when you were uh, at the beach, even if there was nobody around. And the government hired thousands of people to monitor that uh, that you were wearing a mask uh, uh, when when uh, when enjoying some time so imagine imagine the Baywatch, the covid baywatch without the swimsuits or david hasselhoff uh, it's, it, it's it's so it's so ridiculous i know you're a big fan of bureaucrats so i'm sure we'll get oh into that <laughs> but this, 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 this insanity here is so, uh, you, you know, the, the, the number of restrictions that make absolutely no sense, while at the same time you have other uh, restrictions that, are, that, that would make sense that have not been implemented either because it didn't suit governments or because, you know, uh, so-called strategic sectors were, were implicated. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, the whole, thing, the whole thing's ridiculous. Uh, you know, for me, to go play hockey, have coach a bunch of hockey games in Massachusetts where there's no masks, and then come across the border to Connecticut where everyone has to wear a mask, including the players and the refs and the coaches. Ridiculous. Anyway, uh, people wanted to hear more about the other bureaucrats, uh, to taper or not to taper. These people, uh, they're, you know, they're very popular people. They have huge market impact. Uh, you, you've made the argument that they've made huge economic impact in a much more negative way than they would ever admit. But... Um, why is it that you that that you say that you know these guys just can't taper anyway now? Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, central banks are currently in a situation in which they're basically trapped by their own policy. If they decided to really taper, mm -hmm. what they would find is that the artificially low bond yields would soar, that there would be that what they believe would be a mild correction in markets, given the elevated valuations and the aggressive levels of risk taking that has been accumulated for so long would create a much larger impact. So that on one side and obviously Obviously, 
when you have governments in that are running 10%, 8% of GDP deficits, it's virtually impossible to really taper. So what they're announcing actually is simply that they are going to adjust to a lower supply of bonds from governments. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when uh, when you've had a 16, 17% of GDP deficit in 2020, net issuances of bonds by the United States government or some uh, governments in the, in the Eurozone and other countries, obviously they were very high. So now, they will continue to be 100%. Central banks will continue to be, particularly the Fed and the the ECB and the Bank of Japan, will continue to be 100% of net issuances. Therefore, they will maintain uh, the bond yields artificially low, but they will call it tapering only because they're adjusting to a lower supply of bonds from sovereigns. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting day to have uh, your take on this. Obviously, we have an ECB meeting this week. And this morning, I wasn't expecting it. I, 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 most things that happen in markets, you know, I just I embrace the uncertainty of it all. But this morning, European bond yields started moving ostensibly because some people are either on the wrong side of this uh, from a level of extension to the downside in bond yields or not, and or expecting something uh, in terms of language at the ECB meeting. I mean, I didn't. I, you would know better than me. I think that people are expecting uh, a level of hawkishness from the ECB meeting that is extremely unlikely to happen. Hmm. Uh, We know from the past, both with Mr. Draghi, but particularly with Ms. Lagarde, that expectations of hawkishness in the ECB uh, messages and and in in the uh, in the meetings is is. Very, tend to be extremely exaggerated. She will definitely be uh, accommodative. Sorry, accommodative. She will definitely be uh, dovish. And uh, I come back to the point. Uh, remember that in um, between February and March, uh, the sovereign bond yields uh, in uh, Europe, particularly in Southern Europe, started to creep up a little. And that triggered a massive action from the ECB to uh, purchase more bonds in order to keep the bond yields artificially depressed. Mm -hmm. As such, I find it very, very difficult, considering also that we are coming into a period in which the, uh, the, the, the data is showing that there is a slowdown in the recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very, very difficult for the ECB to provide uh, hawkish, real hawkish messages. Yes, the definition of real hawkishness, absolute hawkishness and relative hawkishness to Powell. I guess that's the other one that's at least in my head. He was on the margin far more dovish than than again, the market was expecting. Never mind what I was expecting. And I guess when you look at maybe. Now, talk a little bit about that, because you and I are, are one of the few that, A, ran money on the buy side long and short, and B, tie it together, not just from a policy perspective, but how it impacts currencies, cross-interest rate differentials, relative policy moves in the same time windows. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the key thing for everybody to understand is that despite what, uh, any 
views about what central banks may or may not do, we have seen the peak of the recovery. We have seen, therefore, the peak also of the valuation and of, of, of performance of the more cyclical uh, assets. And I think that also what we're seeing is that as inflation starts to be less temporary than less less transitory than than what the central banks like to say what we are starting to see on the back of that is regulatory risk mm -hmm. we start to see how governments in numerous economies we're seeing it in china we've seen it in the in southern european countries governments start to put the blame of inflationary pressures on businesses. Therefore, you start to be, uh, we start to see on the one hand that the sectors that are more exposed to the recovery have seen the peak of such recovery. And at the same time, those uh, rent seeking or uh, uh, sort of uh, big strategic sectors also suffer the regulatory risk once governments start to start the blame game of inflation. Yeah, that, um, you know, I'm still long REITs, and that's one place where yeah. I haven't been regulated yet. But, I mean, you know, the amount of, uh, the amount of you know, I guess, uh, government, you know, back and forth at this point, you know, there's a partisanship to it as well. You know, you're starting to see for the first time in the U.S., going back to, like, when the Republicans... Um, started doing it more explicitly in the early 1970s, uh, and an actual discussion about some inflation at the Fed. Um, back then, they called it a hydra-headed monster, Daniel. Like, I mean, it's not yeah. like um, you know, like a, a hydra-headed monster. Inflation being something that has that we cannot get under control. We're nowhere near uh, the Fed talking about inflation that way, but at least it's directionally acknowledging that they were wrong on it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that if there's one thing that we can certainly uh, say today is that uh, the Fed said, well, you know, there's the base effect and there's transitory uh, elements uh, attached to inflation. But we're also seeing that once the base effect, we have to remember, we've had two inflation prints after the base effect was over. Yeah, exactly. This is a, this, this is a key factor that people tend to forget because, you know, it, it's very easy to to hide some of these inflationary pressures under uh, the wrong things. No? So we've had two months of inflation print after the basic the base effect was completely over. And second, we have seen how even in commodities where uh, prices have started to slow down or cool off, the highs reached in May remain very stable. That means that the inflationary pressures generated at the beginning of the year uh, remain for citizens. And I think that that's what matters ultimately when we look at consumer confidence, when we look at the consumer trends, and certainly investment decisions, because this is this is uh, catching businesses at a moment in which margins are under pressure because of uh, inflationary pressures, while at the same time the economy remains significantly behind what would be considered a normalized environment. And therefore, uh, they're not going to go out and invest when the vast majority of central bank and government action in 2020, what it did was basically perpetuate over capacity with all of the stimulus and subsidies that were provided. Mm -hmm. that, that's a, a very important point that the base effect receded and inflation stuck. 
That's a super yeah. important point for people that model it the way that we do. Uh, again, with the stochastic overlay and all the data we drop into the model, that to me is really the big. I was, I was, you know, I've been long inflation since June of last year, um, but I was surprised at how much longer I could hold that position. Just being long, yeah. you know, what I call quad two uh, inflation, and then moving to what you called, or what I think you just said, which is at least what I call it, uh, quad three stagflation, where it starts to hurt the people and real growth starts to slow at a fast rate, which you obviously saw you know, notwithstanding the variant or whatever excuse people want to make, that's what you just saw in the U.S. jobs report on Friday. That was very evident in the jobs report. Remember that we had a disappoint, an incredibly disappointing jobs report relative to already downgraded expectations. The whisper <laughs> came down to 700K. Yeah. 700K was not what consensus was telling us day and night over and over, all of us that received their, their, their emails. They were talking about 850 as yep. a base, and it went down to 700K and came much lower. Very important thing in the jobs report to me is that all of the employment ratios, once you uh, put them standardized, uh, you see that, for example, uh, the, the labor force participation has been 11 months stagnant, mm? Mm -hmm. that the employment to uh, population ratio remains extremely poor at 58% that the recovery in the services sector has all but stopped, no? So I think that all of those things are telling you that um, that, there, that the what consumer confidence was telling us uh, was actually a warning sign that is uh, reaching a wider uh, uh, part of the economy. Mm -hmm. They're telling us, obviously, that the, the labor market is very tight, that uh, businesses cannot hire, and that wages are growing 4%. First, wages are growing below inflation. So real wages are not growing. More importantly, <laughs> yeah, we, the look US, yeah, at, for sure. <laughs> we look at averages. We look at averages. Median, my friend, we have to look at median. The median average wage growth is negative in the United States. It is negative in the Eurozone. Inflation is higher than the median wage growth. Yeah, that's a, as you make, you're just like knocking down the pins. Forget the Baywatch of uh, Spain here, man. You're get, <laughs> you got like the, you got everyone, you're listening to the Baywatch, the guy who's watching every data point that we're looking at and he's knocking them down. Um, on this inflation stick, I want to just uh, show three now cast what Daniel just said, which again, if you take this level, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying, but you take the level of inflation minus wage inflation, slide 15, you know, what's been interesting to me, like again, my, my now cast is now pushing towards five and could easily get above five if I were to change the rent component, Daniel, if I were just to plug it instead of doing it, you know, that, you know we wait for the data points to be reported, then it drops into the now cast, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, those for at least these next two quarters are very high numbers. Um, but the rate of change on the Chinese numbers, and this is a government yeah. that, slide 78, uh, that one, like, you know, base effects, which now I think a lot of people talk about them in the U.S., they don't model them uh, the way we do, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, this one is, is going to double. 
you know, and that's yeah. according to made up Chinese numbers. And, and the Chinese have obviously acknowledged that surprise to themselves and started selling like 30,000 tons of copper last week. Um, and then finally, the European one, just so that because you're the only guy on the earth that I think can tie all this together. Uh, but the Eurozone um, now cast on slide 93, guys, that one, too. I mean, it's going up a lot. Like the U.S. Yeah. one is up there and it's sticking there. The, 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 the Chinese one and the European one, if we're right, they're just really starting to step higher. to their, And again, they're going to be local peaks. But what do you think about all that? Well, obviously, the first thing that's that's concerning about it all is that um, for policymakers, we're talking about a, a level of uh, change in the rate of inflation that is a headline, but is, that is not a concern. However, when we go to the essential goods and services, and that is the big problem in China, and the government would have not implemented the headline-grabbing measures uh, to so-called uh, intervene in the strategic sectors if there wasn't a social uh, concern about massive increases in the prices of essential goods and services. And I come back to the point that when you see an average CPI within the basket of 2.9% for fresh food, that means that a lot of people's bills when they go to the supermarket are up between 10 to 15% from the levels that they were a year before. Fresh food, the things that we purchase on a daily basis, utility prices in, in the Eurozone have gone through the roof. Um, all of those things generate lack of confidence in consumers. Consumers are likely to spend a lot less precisely at a moment in which the savings rate has come down to almost the level at which it was before the pandemic. So the savings rate has been consumed incredibly fast, much faster than anybody was expecting. So what this tells us is that the impact on consumption and the impact on investment of the rise in inflation is likely to be a larger drag on the recovery, particularly into 2022, as those inflationary pressures become more sticky. Now, on that, because um, I just put, we just did China, USA, and Europe together, which again, I think it's a real important thing because it, it just shows you the rate of change and the direction of it all. Um, but how about the stickiness of it all? I mean, you mentioned, and you've tweeted about it. Yeah. You just tweeted, um, if you don't follow Lakaye on Twitter, you're missing um, an education, by the way. Uh, but you've tweeted recently on the U.S. personal savings rate, the real-time data versus the perception. Uh, wh where are we at on, on European savings rates? Uh, pretty much the same. Uh, savings rate went uh, massively up, obviously. In the, in the pandemic and the lockdowns to above 30%. And it's uh, fallen dramatically to uh, within the average, give or take a point uh, of where it was pre-pandemic. So it's, a, it's about 9.2%. 9, 9 um, the, uh, the, uh, the other important thing that we have to understand is that you have to adjust the figure, the official figure, to what would be considered a normal savings rate in an right. environment in which there are still millions of furloughed jobs. One of the things that some people say is, oh, but the savings rate is still higher than in pre-pandemic levels. Hold on a second. We have almost six to eight million 
uh, furlough jobs on mm. top of the unemployment a year after the reopening. And when you showed the inflation figures in China, this is very important because think about this. You're talking about a country in which allegedly the government is able to keep prices under control through massive intervention and second a country that where the concept of base effect and the concept of supply chain disruptions does not exist because it's <laughs> far, it, it is far behind it and yeah. uh, it, it did not have it i'm talking about six months ago no yeah what do you uh, on, on china what do you where are you at in terms of I get this question from a lot of institutions in particular, given the differences in terms of the Chinese economy and its, you know, its cadence in terms of quads, if you will, because China uh, peaked before the U.S. They also entered COVID and many would argue gave us COVID. Uh, you know, so it all started early. Therefore, their base effects mattered. Now they so they yeah. started to slow faster. They started to regulate faster. Where in terms of innings, if you want to try that or, or use uh, a European, you know, European football analogy, where do you think we are in terms of Xi and, 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 and his response to all this is? Sure, sure. I think that we are at the beginning of what is uh, called the crackdown. No, we're hearing uh, all the time headlines about the crackdown being about um, uh, too much power from technology giants or from education companies. Mm -hmm. Come on. I mean, let's be serious. If those were the concern, <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's so it's such a joke. Mm -hmm. uh, if the concern of the government was the uh, pricing power of technology giants and education uh, companies, what they would do is to implement le legislative measures that would uh, improve and open the economy in order to reduce via competition and technology the such uh, pricing power, if it existed, by the way. I don't think that any Chinese citizen has complained about the pricing uh, of any of those technology uh, giants. But in any case, what I think is what we need to understand is what the book We Have Been Harmonized told us quite a few years ago, is that the Chinese economy, since Xi Jinping uh, finally found that his tenure is eternal, um, uh, is, is, is closing down, and it's mm. closing down gradually. And it's closing down gradually, but but consistently. You know, now it has it is forcing companies to include so-called social uh, spending, etc., uh, using the cash flow of businesses for non-economic uh, return things. Um, it, it is an economy in which they're coming, they're, they're going back to a lot of the mistakes that they made uh, in before the, the 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 economy opened no so um, so the point is will the will the gdp be above 6% you bet the chinese gdp is the only gdp in the world that is never revised <laughs> the, uh, of course it will yeah you know and and gross capital formation will be phenomenal and the uh, and 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 we will see a rate of change in inflation that will look acceptable but the reality is that what we're seeing is an economy that is closing down in which the forces of technology and competition are being uh, intervened in a very aggressive way. And that, 
I'm sorry for those that, that, that love to invest in China, that creates multiple compression. And it will continue to create multiple compression because you don't know when you analyze a Chinese company first, you don't know what the real cash flow is. But now you know that whatever it is, half of it is going to be intervened by the government. That it, it's, such a, it's such a monumental point in cycle time for them. And it, and it yeah. always it always is like it's just that they're further out down the you know down the road to perdition if you will on big stuff like demographics the the old China industrial cycle things that you and I have known for a long time end the wrong yeah. way much like they did not to you know, it's China's not Japan but people will understand the analog is that you have this big bubbly high when they post WTO and then from there all you have is them just trying to keep it. You know, but guys, show slide 80. This is Chinese manufacturing PPI. There are very few yeah. mean reversion charts. Like if the Chinese were to make up every number, they, they should certainly you know, watch this webcast and, and change the numbers on this one. Because it's the fourth time since 08 that that thing peaked. And when it peaks, Daniel, it gets pancaked. You know, it doesn't like Absolutely. this thing. So you get cyclical and secular. Secular, I, I don't think, well, certainly you and I aren't going to debate the secular issues that she faces and, and why he's regulating. But we're at a uh, we're at a, a very tangible um, PPI peak in particular here, using that as a proxy for a lot of the manufacturing base. And that is a very important uh, graph that you just showed, because people tend to forget that people tend to think that because it is a heavily managed economy and the government basically owns a number of strategic sectors and, and keeps the, its hands on the strategic sectors that it can sort of navigate through these things. But we forget that uh, about 50% of the, of the economy is the private sector, but 80% of the employment comes in the urban uh, part of the economy mm -hmm. from the private sector. So every time that you see these so-called crackdowns, the impact afterwards on investment and on consumption are relevant. And as you very and and what that chart shows as well is how quickly uh, the manufacturing sector suffers from rise in input prices because the margins are so low and the, 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 the fragile state of the manufacturing sector in China is so evident that um, there's very little margin uh, for companies to maintain levels of employment that are basically suggested or ordered by the government while at the same time maintaining a level of margins that will not bring them under in terms of uh, their financial situation. Do you think that this, I mean, let's say you have an outlook like I do for the, by the middle of next year, Q2 of next year, just using our GIP model, you know, it is going to be a shit show, very technical term for those of you that are still in school, a shit show when it comes to U.S. economic data, rate of change of real growth for sure, uh, profits big time, and, and obviously inflation coming off its cycle peak. Do you think, like, with, if, if, if China is at the beginning, you said, and it's running squarely into that. Never mind that the that people at the Fed want to taper into that, which is entirely yeah. uh, another topic, but not not really. It's 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 certainly part of the conversation. But but this Chinese moment, like how how can we help people contextualize the significance of it? We need to understand how big and how important it is, because um, 
we, we need to understand China exports deflation, okay? So China sends product, cheaper products to the rest of the world. Now, if China starts to crack down and to intervene uh, uh, sectors, then what happens is that the ability of those sectors to be competitive is lower. And as such, the manufacturing cycle, which is as you as you've shown by the way a few times the manufacturing cycle in developed economies it follows almost uh, by a couple of quarters that of china no so we need to understand that it's a very good bellwether for uh, uh change in in cycle now for change in in the in the in the landscape not just for chinese equities which you might decide not to purchase for regulatory or or corporate governance issues but also for the most cyclical of the uh, developed economies ones now we have seen for example how industrial production in germany is uh, has moderately risen in the last print, but it has not even recovered the, the decline of the July print. No? So it's showing you that the uh, bullwhip effect of the reopening uh, can generate uh, a level of exuberance and a level of optimism that afterwards uh, it comes back to bite you. No? So I think that the way to, for, for people to, uh, to, to, to navigate this as investors is to first forget all of the messages that try to tell you that this, the figures that we're seeing don't matter and that uh, as we always read, in the next three months, everything will get better just see the rate of change. No, I think that you just shown very important figures in which they show that the the things that matter to you, if you're very exposed to, to, to the cycle, are moving in different uh, trends than the ones that would be helping you. The inflationary pressures are going up while the economic sentiment and the economic surprise indices are coming down. Obviously, you mentioned the shit show for 2022. It's going to be, I mean, it's going to be incredible. Think about it. The same thing that is making people uh, send, uh, I don't know, uh, fireworks uh, because of alleged bounces of 15, 16% is going to drive uh, collapses of 15, 16% next year. Yeah, I mean, you're going to go from pizza, you know, pizza box stock reviews uh, to, to him coming out of the restaurant with a pizza box that's fully uh, on fire. I mean, you're going to have a very different situation there. Um, all this all this ties down like, I mean, people don't trust the government. The people don't trust the government, at least privately in, in their own homes. I'm sure uh, many Chinese families would say that in as much as European and U.S. ones would. Uh, we have a very polarized you know, situation here in the USA that's not new. Um, but, you know, the, the, and, and I, I have one tweet in particular I'm going to ask you about in a second. But first, I wanted to ask you about how you tie that lack of trust uh, to crypto. And you and I aren't, you know, like, uh, I, I don't think we're the world's uh, top crypto experts, according to the crypto experts, but I have some thoughts on that, too. Well, the, the biggest thing that when we talk about crypto is that, you know, you're talking from the United States where we where you have the U.S. dollar, the world reserve currency. I'm talking from Europe where we have the euro. Both are world reserve currencies. So we tend to talk about cryptocurrencies from the perspective of people that enjoy world reserve currencies. We, we should be talking with people in 
Argentina with 44% inflation, in Venezuela, yeah. in Iran, in uh, Turkey, in uh, so many countries in which the volatility of cryptocurrencies is not even uh, a concern compared with the knowledge that their government is going to destroy the currency's purchasing power, yes or yes. So the, so the issue for us for, in terms of cryptocurrencies is whether they're a good investment. Mm -hmm. The issue for some people in uh, other countries is whether they can help them uh, defend themselves against the destruction of the purchasing power of their currency by their government. So, uh, so that's the first thing that we that we need to understand. For example, where I remember when uh, uh, Bitcoin uh, fell dramatically. No, I I put a tweet with the performance of Bitcoin relative to the Argentine peso, the uh, Mexican peso, the uh, Russian ruble, the Venezuelan Bolivar, etc. <laughs> I mean, seriously, there's in a, in a decade you don't even want to talk about. So the other problem, but now the problem that we need to understand is whether cryptocurrencies behave counter cyclically to financial assets. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, they don't. Mm -hmm. They're, in my opinion, you need to understand that, they, that it's not a defense in a portfolio. If you, you want to invest in cryptocurrencies and you want to see them for the long term, you have to remember that they are startup currencies that they're not a reserve of value yet, that they're not means of payment of generalized use yet, and they're definitely not units of measure. That's fine. We, not, we know that they're not money yet. They're startup currencies and they're volatile. But uh, the other thing that we need to understand is that they don't behave, they don't work counter cyclically to the performance of uh, other financial assets. No? So, so in a portfolio, they don't reduce volatility, certainly, and they don't reduce beta exposure. They exacerbate it. Yeah, that, uh, that's a back-tested fact, as we like to say uh, at Hedgeye. I mean, I, I didn't tell the back-test to do that. It just is that. Yeah. You know, the only, the only time, quite literally, the only time that crypto, and you can pick any crypto because they all you know, directionally trade together, in quad four, when you have quad four economic deflation, they get zapped, they get crushed. And at, you know, the, this guy, Mike Saylor, got all upset with that. And he told me that my models are gonna be destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. But all I did was I applied my, if I have like in my top three premises of investing, which you know, would include stu you know, big things like don't lose money, let's start with that, you know, and, and volatility adjusted returns. Volatility adjusted returns you know, this thing has the biggest volatility in the history of volatility of anything that you would like to be institutionalized. So obviously, you know, volatility has been public enemy number one. And public enemy number one, you know, that, that is correlating to volatility is quad four or economic deflation. Absolutely. And I think that people that really, really, really follow cryptocurrencies say, yes, absolutely. I take the volatility. I take the risk. I know that yep. they're uh, pro-cyclical. And I'm willing to ride that, you know, like, like, you know, jumping on, <laughs> on, on a big, big, Yolo. catch a big, catch, a, yeah, ride the bull, no, one of those yeah. massive bulls that you see in the, in the state fairs. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That, but the people that really understand don't deny that. They're right. not trying to say that it's sort of, 
an, an equivalent to silver or an equivalent to a, uh, to, to a sovereign bond. No, it's, it is a very volatile and directional asset. That's, that's fine. I think that what's important is, is to look at the big picture, is that it's amazing that it's uh, more than 12, 13 years that we have been talking about cryptocurrencies. They're still there. Mm -hmm. So the key point about is, uh, and you mentioned as well, is the rate of change is how the they are, they might not yet be uh, substitutes or alternatives to the uh, currencies, the fiat currencies of states in countries like ours that have global reserve status, but they're starting to be alternatives, valid alternatives to defend yourself from the repression, the monetary repression of governments in other countries. And I come back to the point, there are countries in Latin America that I speak with regularly in which people say, oh, it's coming down 20%. You want to know what's coming down 20% every six months? Huh? The purchasing power of the currency of my country. Yeah, I mean, today actually on that front is a big day for El Salvador making it official. Uh, and yeah. in our morning meeting, I was asking Josh Steiner, who, who does all of our crypto research, but he also works with me on the macro team. So he's like you and I, we can we can have a discussion without being triggered by the thing personally. You know, it's it's OK. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that he said, look, you know, you're not going to be shocked. But Argentina is like second or third in line and considering this. And then as he went through the different countries, I'm like, yeah, they're the most screwed up countries in the history of countries from a currency perspective. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, absolutely. It's, yeah. Um, Absolutely. But the citizens in Argentina know that the reason why the purchasing power of their currency is being destroyed is because the government benefits from it. So be very careful about betting on the government defending your pur the purchasing power of your salary and your 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 savings. Yeah, yeah that uh, that brings to mind a uh, tweet that you uh, I love it when you do this. Um, you took a Christine Lagarde tweet. And, uh, you know, she was trying to make some statement about um, crypto or digital technology, which is a little outside of her pay grade. Um, and you <laughs> you said there this is uh, Lakai's tweet to Lagarde. Uh, and I'm assuming she knows very well who he is. There is no people's demand for central bank digital currencies. People buy crypto. Okay to escape central bank printing. People want less central bank destruction of purchasing power of currency, not more. Yeah, absolutely. That, and, and I come back to, you know, central banks want digital currencies and they want digital currencies because uh, it because they make the wrong analysis. They think that the reason why the uh, transmission of monetary policy is, quote unquote, not good is because it goes through the banking system. But yep. the banking system, so basically the central bank increases money supply, basically adds credit. Therefore, all of that is, is channeled through the credit mechanism via banks, driven by what? Driven by demand for credit. Now, if you create a digital currency, a central bank digital currency, you are wiping out the mechanism that avoids massive inflationary pressures. And at the same time, you're putting the entire information of the monetary system in the hands of central banks. Obviously, if you believed in the full independence of central banks, you would say, well, what's the problem? My problem is that 
we have been more than <laughs> debating the independence <laughs> of central banks. Therefore, you're basically allowing a tool that is surveillance disguised as currency because they will control the entire thing. Obviously, they can print whatever they want, whenever they want. More importantly, they can decide where and who to print to. And this is something that people don't talk about, is that by putting a, 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 one of these uh, central bank digital currencies and everybody's accounts directly in the central bank, the central bank can decide if you're a good citizen, whether to make you <laughs> a beneficiary of newly created money or a payer of newly destroyed money. Yeah, that doesn't sound like the 101 you know, crypto bull, like you said, the YOLO riding the bull at the fair. That, that's not what they believe. That's that definitely no, it's not. A different, it's, and it's a very, <laughs> exactly, it's a very different thing. People buy <laughs> cryptocurrencies to escape central banks. Uh, people don't want central banks to become crypto, uh, basically to accelerate the financial repression that we are seeing today. Yeah, the problem, the problem with this is that it goes too far and, and it is cyclical. And then once the cycle yeah. comes to a quad four halt, there is going to be nothing but tears and blood and, and all the bad things that happen for a wide, uh, well, the widest number of people in the history of crypto. Let's just put it there. I mean, it's one thing for me. We literally bought, uh, you know, one of these uh, random crypto things the other day, like our investment team put me through. I'm like, OK, this is like. And Michael Bloom says this to me, he said, well, you know, I, I, I think of that uh, that check that we wrote as basically a zero or a hope or, you know, it's, it's nothing in between. Um, but but I, I acknowledge that. Right. It went through our investment committee. It's a we think it's a good idea. It's a good idea in a bull market, uh, but it could go away and we're not going to lose hedge eye if it goes away. But people will lose whatever they have. You know, every time this thing has volatility of 80 to 150 and we know that. Mm -hmm. And that's sad. Oh, you know? yeah. That's what citizens, everybody needs to understand is that there is no free lunch in any investment, none of them. Okay. And when you, and that you need just, you need to acknowledge volatility, you know, and it's very scary because when, you know, you, you, you jump on a taxi and somebody tells you, oh, what do you think about cryptocurrencies? Why are they asking you? Because they're going up. But when they go down, there's silence. At least <laughs> nobody asks me. Nobody asks me about cryptocurrencies when they're going down. So important to understand the volatility. And the key thing is what you just said: is that when you realize that you can lose 100% of your investment, that's fine. Then, yeah. You know, you make your your volatility adjusted returns, my friend. That's what you want. Yeah, uh, the 100%. I mean. I max out any crypto, the biggest ones, I go with the liquidity because obviously I can measure and map that, like Ethereum, for example, or Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I max it 4% of my book. I don't go bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And I use the same volatility assumptions that I use for commodities. I don't, I've, never, I've never in my life bought more uh, than 4% of my book is, a, is a crude oil or, and or futures and options contracts in as much as buying cocoa. I'll buy anything as people are mostly used to knowing at this point. But again, just we're just trying to help you, you know, think it through. Da Daniel and I aren't, aren't pitching anything. We're trying to help you understand how to risk manage it. Absolutely. We, we, we had this, this uh, principle when I was at Citadel. We talked about this before, which when you have an asset in your portfolio, that keeps you awake at night and that the only thing that you think about is that thing. It is 
deterring you from looking at other very interesting opportunities that might yep. arise in other assets. So the key thing, as you said, is, you know, you have 3%, 4% of your portfolio in this asset, phenomenal. If it blows out, if it blows up, that is going to uh, not generate you the kind of concern or the kind of worry that will prevent you from looking at tremendous opportunities that arise every day in markets. Yeah, that is a very well put and, and from a professional risk manager's point of view. And, and again, the notion that somebody who's a Bitcoin maxi doesn't care about volatility is complete royal bullshit. I mean, they would not have troll networks, as far as the eye can see, coming after any comment we make on their, on their Bitcoin. And I'm long it, um, you know, if that wasn't the case. So volatility mm -hmm. in any asset class is what kills returns and you have to be able to risk manage it. Um, I'm going to get to, um, if you don't mind, I'm going to get to the questions that are getting the most um, up, up, vote, up votes here. Um, yeah, the one's pretty uh, boilerplate, but it's got a lot of votes, so I'll ask it. Uh, what, 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 Daniel, what's the biggest risk that investors are ignoring right now? I think that the biggest risk that investors are ignoring is stagflation. You have talked about it. I have talked about it. Numerous of, of the uh, people that we that we follow and, and are talking about it, but it's not even close to being a consensus uh, concern. I, I saw a, a, like some economist, Old Wall, obviously was chirping me this weekend, and I, he's like, a, I don't want to give him an audience, so I just like ignored it. Mm -hmm. um, but he was like, he he, he lit, quite literally called it unequivocally, no, there's no stagflation. I'm like, okay, Old Wall. As long as the officialdom yeah. believes that, that's, I mean, the Fed believes that, you know, the, yeah. if Biden believed that there was stagflation, he wouldn't tell you, you know, it's not like you're getting. More importantly, is that what many of these uh, economists and bankers think is stagflation is wrong. They think that stagflation is GDP flat or down and inflation up 15%. It's ah. 1970s stagflation. And they're wrong. And I've had this discussion. Is that they've told me that is never going to happen. I said, never, never said that would happen. Yeah. But Neither GDP I. growth of 2% and inflation of 4% is stagflation because mm -hmm. the, the inflation is a CPI basket not what everybody is 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 uh, feeling and the pinch that consumers are really feeling so that that is one of the one of the uh, in my opinion the biggest risk because as an investor you it is it is not too difficult to uh, generate a, a good portfolio geared towards deflation and one geared towards inflation but stagflation gosh because the value sectors get decimated because they cannot pass the, the, the inflation to consumers and they receive the burden of regulatory risk and the growth sectors suffer because obviously consumption is much weaker. No? So mm -hmm. I think that that is one of, the, one of the challenges, to be fairly honest. Well, I, I think that that's, I mean, if you tie it back, to, and people t have a central tendency um, that are more fundamental in nature, less quant, less macro, less you know, less fractal, They'll, if you tell them how, what we mean and you put that in a company, because they like their companies, they like their stocks, they're like, yeah. if I tell them, well, I'm short Verizon, Clorox, and Campbell Soup, based on all that, and eventually, if it continues, they're going to have to start firing people in mass to cover the cost, uh, the cost creep that they have, because they have no pricing power on the top end of all this. You know, they're like, oh, yeah. yeah, those are like melting ice cubes. I'm like, no shit. That's that's where that stagflation to me, the, the worst, the riskiest part to me, 
Daniel, and I want to see if you agree or disagree with him. I said we probably will. But the, is once it gets into the corporate P&L, the corporate P&L, instead of the mucho, you know, gracias, the biggest profit pools co companies in America are ever going to see, or this past quarter and maybe the one we're going into it, is when people have a sense that they're going to either lose their job uh, or lose and or lose their job and have to pay more when they're on the dole to live their life. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we have seen it before. There's, you know, there's the, the worst mistake that we can make is not look at the past. We look, can look at a period in which there was stagflation and look how the stock market behaved, particularly in yeah. the most beloved, uh, safer companies. It was, it was really, really bad for those stocks yeah. because, as you very well mentioned, you, on the one hand, you have, uh, you have, you're fighting, uh, you're against your P&L with the inability to maintain your margins. Yeah, it's, it, it, uh, I wrote my senior thesis uh, at Yale in the 1990s partly on this because you find that one period where Buffett was really confused. And it was, in, it, it was in that period where he was like, holy shit, I bought this stock at eight or ten times earnings. It, it, it's, it's wrong for it to go to four or yeah. five times earnings. It's like, no, actually, that's the one time the S&P 500 traded at seven times earnings in the 1970s that yeah. he, he had to learn that lesson. And and the and to again to repeat, this is we're not saying that the S and P 500 is going to go to five times or seven <laughs> times there. It okay? has though, no, because, <laughs> because people because people get very crazy. But yeah. what be, and obviously you had completely different interest rates. But I think that what's important here for people to understand is that the that the companies that look safer and stronger. Uh, because of their size, because of their market share, because of their brand, those are the ones that suffer. That's the point that we're both trying to make, I believe. Yep, agreed. Uh, here's a good question from Eric Weller. Um, and this, I struggle with this one. I mean, it, I think it gets down to timing. But Daniel, if we know that the Fed backstops everything and that fiscal stimulus will be passed at all costs to stop civil unrest, why are we still talking about deflation? You know, shouldn't it be transitory deflation defined as the period of time in between when the market basically pukes and the Fed jumps in again? It's a good, good, good oh, question. I think, it's a, I think it's a good question. The first thing is, obviously, to, to talk about deflation, uh, remember that um, we use as an example of long-term deflation Japan you only have to go to Japan and ask any Japanese that's a little bit old if they live in deflation, because you might get hit. Huh? Yeah. Okay. So, cause, so yes, deflationary pressures are a lot less uh, permanent than what we are told to believe. We are told to believe that central banks need to combat deflation risk, but no consumer in history has ever seen any problem. I've never seen anybody leave a supermarket saying, oh, gosh, I cannot tolerate this anymore. Food prices are down. OK, yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but more importantly is that we don't understand the benefits of deflationary pressures. 
technology, companies become more uh, innovative, become they look for the most uh, uh, the most uh, productive way to ge to generate their business. The, it, it incentivizes looking for the best options and to do better. Uh, inflation is a lazy subsidy on lack of productivity mm -hmm. and it's lowering the wages of everybody. So if all of you are, are expecting governments to increase wages, well, inflation reduces wages. Mm -hmm. Here's another follow-up question on this. This is a popular topic. Um, so that's, um, it's, 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 it's interesting. And, and, and I do want to make sure, like you said, you know, just because you understand what happened in the 1970s or where the S&P multiple went, that's not like it's not a call. It's understand. Yeah. Well, the question was asked is what is the you know, mm -hmm. most dangerous risk and risks that are the most dangerous haven't played out yet. So, I mean, we're just trying to make sure that people, you know, understand that uh, just to address a couple of questions that are there. But um, this one's from uh, Bobby from Windsor. Uh, Daniel, it took a major personality in Volcker, in Volcker to kill it last time with cost push inflation, stagflation. How long do you see this lasting and how high do you think interest rates would go this time? Oh, I don't think, I think that the difference here uh, from other periods, and that's why it's so difficult for uh, economists to, to make uh, accurate predictions is that the level of intervention on interest rates is so huge that um, it disguises a lot of the risk. No, right. think about this. If you look today at the uh, at the uh, the yield of the uh, ten-year bond in most eurozone countries, where would you need to start considering buying that bond uh, if the European Central Bank was not purchasing 100% of the net issuances. Well, you probably would be thinking at three times where they're yielding today. That basically says that where we're right now, interest rates in uh, the United States should be around 6% right mm. now because of the inflation. <laughs> because of inflation no? 6%. Hmm? But they're not. No. So the, the answer to your question is that you say, well, how does this play out? Because if there's such a wide uh, difference between what real rates should be and what they are, how, where does this manifest itself? And it manifests itself on massive debt. Therefore, yeah. the risk of Japanization is not a deflationary uh, risk uh, environment, is a massive indebtedness environment. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's an excellent point. Uh, here's a great question. Uh, Daniel, what do you think about the theory that we're all living in an exponential economy? Exponential economy. And we should all be piling into Kathy Wood's ARC fund. Wow. Uh, where do I start? Okay. Um, <laughs> the economy, you know, you don't generate, you don't invent the economy. The economy is, 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 is the economy is a science. Uh, economic policy is politics. Okay. So what we need to understand is that we're not in an exponential anything. There might be sectors that are growing fast because in their early part of their own cycle, but yeah. Like others, like all sectors, they go from growing 
100% to growing 3% to to not growing at all and dying. No, so we what you cannot do is to translate one and a half percent, and I'm being generous, of the overall global economy, and say that that is what drives the other uh, 98 and a half percent. Okay, and no, it's not an exponential economy. No, we are in an economy that is working exactly the same as all economists do. We have a massive injection of liquidity and a massive injection of spending that creates a short-term uh, boost. That short-term boost generates, uh, has been proven to generate negative multiplier effects, not sh low, negative multiplier effects. So you go from boom to bust cycles. No, we're not in an exponential economy. I mean, if you believe if you, if you believe that, then you're going to really that's I put that in my top three risks because again, you know, some numbers have gone exponential because a we had a pandemic, b we had a pandemic, and c we had the base effects born of the pandemic. So every number you look 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 at at certain companies were exponential, but now the market's yeah. discounting the future of that. Not I mean to, to Daniel's point, negative. They're the only thing worse, and I, I've built a growth company, and I, I've had years where it's not what I would like on revenue. Every Absolutely. one of those years, I learned something from you know on, on what I thought growth was going to be to what my cost structure was, and I had to make some tough decisions. I mean, it's not yeah. this. This is the reality. That's a, that's that's not exponential. It's cyclical. It's yeah. And 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 coming back to the to to your point. To ignore human action in the economy and to ignore the fact that the cycles exist is what generates the biggest mistakes right. in investment. We might get wrong the start or the end of a cycle. We might get wrong a stock. I might get wrong an idea. That's not a problem. But that's what investing is. What we cannot do is to say is to is to say the worst sentence that you can say as an economist or as an investor, which is this time is different because it's not and it's bullshit. <laughs> it's, it's the cycle, stupid. I mean, I, I you know, yeah. it's like we always got to keep the, the sign curve of the cycle in mind. Here's this uh, last question. I'll, I'll give this one to you because I don't know the answer. I've never heard this from you. I'm assuming this is you because uh, Rich, uh, Rich said that it's your stance. Um, and this is a, a completely different question related to what we were just talking about. Uh, can you elaborate on your stance on Nordic countries and the socialist myth? Yeah. Is that oh, yours? Well, it's pretty, okay. it's pretty easy. I think that you, you only have to listen to the Minister of Finance of, of Finland tell you uh, Nordic countries are not socialist. They are capitalist, hugely capitalist societies mm -hmm. with a welfare state. With a welfare state. That's it. Like Spain, like France, like so many others. They have a welfare state, and the welfare state is uh, looks very high because they're very small countries, and because there's been this massive myth created about them. But if you look at the, for example, if you look at the cost of the public sector employees in the Nordic countries relative to the cost of the public sector employees in the southern European countries, it's smaller. If you look at the if you look at the uh, economy of the Nordic countries, it's an economy based on where do we maximize the growth and the wealth 
in order to have a welfare state. So it doesn't start from uh, redistribution. It starts from creation. And therefore, what you have is that they are leaders in uh, in uh, economic freedom. Look at the Heritage Foundation economic, uh, freedom, economic freedom Index. You have the Nordic countries at the top. Uh, the level of taxation that they say is is, is huge, is basically larger than the United States based on what? Fundamentally on indirect taxes, on VAT, on the tax on sales. Huh? That is the big difference. The big driver of their huge taxation is not taxing corporates. In fact, corporate taxation is quite low relative to OECD countries. It's not based on the taxation of capital or the taxation of uh, uh, individuals. It's mostly on indirect taxes. That is the biggest driver of their, of their taxation system. So it's basically, just to summarize, they are hugely capitalistic societies with a welfare state. There you go. I just learned something again and again and again. I'm long um, EFNL, which is Finland, which you just mentioned, uh, Norway, which is NORW, for none of the reasons that you just said, but now I have more reasons. That's great. You know, it's like, I love capitalists. I love that. Because I, I, I bought them because they were going into the right quad. Um, so that's why I bought them. But it's, uh, you, you always have, uh, and, and, and thank you for that, you always have an ability to, to educate, certainly me, and I know that when you're giving these breakdowns, you get to, you're really challenging people's premise, like the, the premise of the establishment, whether they be the central banks or they be the countries or the socialists or the bureaucrats. And you know what? Um, tell those damn Spanish uh, Baywatch people that are watching people without their masks to like, you know, like get, you buzz off, right? Just get out of there. I'm going to tell the guys yeah. that are doing it here in Connecticut in the hockey rinks and I'll say that I talked to this guy Lacaye about it and we're good. Yes. Well, <laughs> the same way I would always say, I would say the following. The same way that you, uh, you follow economists, but economist predictions are not eco economics, are predictions. Scientific predictions are also estimates. They're made by scientists the same way that, econom that economists make uh, estimates. And the same way that you have to take with their value and with the same pinch of salt and the same level and understanding the premise that base that estimates are based on, you have to use with scientists. Sci one thing is science, another completely different thing is science estimates. One thing is economics, and a completely different thing is economic estimates. I can make a mistake about my estimates about the economy because the premises that I build those estimates on might be incorrect or might be uh, in, in some shape or form not, uh, uh, not fully accurate. The same happens with, with a scientist. That doesn't mean that economic laws don't exist. That doesn't mean that scientific laws don't exist. Estimates are estimates. Awesome. And he has got great estimates, that guy. I tell you, that guy. <laughs> Thank you very much for spending the time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, as always, a, a pleasure and, and, and great fun, which is what matters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He is the one and only Daniel Lacaye. I'm Keith McCullough. If you want to tweet at us, we're uh, looking forward to hearing from all of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Real Conversations, brought to you by Hedgeye. 
Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.